Hello and welcome to Conversations and Cultural Heritage. This five-episode series from Murbrook School's Mellon Fellowship for Diversity, Inclusion, and Cultural Heritage highlights the background and work of people of color in cultural heritage organizations. We'll talk about different career paths and roles in cultural heritage institutions, sharing a wide range of experiences from people in the field. Visit our website at bit.ly slash chconvos for links and more information. Hello, everybody. I am here with Rhiannon Sorrell, Assistant Professor at the School of Arts, Humanities, and English, and the Instruction and Digital Services Librarian at the Ne College in Sale, Arizona, on the Navajo Nation. Born to Red House and Tangle People clans, Rhiannon has a disciplinary background in information literacy instruction, creative nonfiction, digital humanities, and special collections, and archival services to indigenous populations. She is a member of the 2018 cohort of ALA's Emerging Leaders and has served on the executive board of the American Indian Library Association. Earlier this year, she was one of Library Journal's movers and shakers in the area of educators. She is a research fellow with the National Endowment for the Humanities, Arts, and Humanities Research Council funded project Indigenous Knowledges, Indigenous Knowledges, a Digital Residency Exchange and Best Practices Pilot. Rhiannon is perhaps best known for her work as a partner and DINA coordinator for the NEH-funded project, Tribe Sourcing Southwest Film, Digital Repatriation. And I'm here with Jaime Valenzuela, pronouns are he, him, archivist and scholarly communications lead at the Krakiola Law Library, James E. Rogers College of Law. Jaime joined the Krakiola Law Library in February 2016. He holds an MA in in Library and Information Science and a BA in Creative Writing from the University of Arizona. In pursuing his graduate degree, Jaime held a graduate assistantship at the University of Arizona's Laboratory of Tree Ring Research, where he helped build a functioning library. He's also worked and volunteered in various library settings, which include the University of Arizona's Egyptian Expedition, Freeport McMoran Incorporated, the Arizona State Prison Complex in Tucson, and the University of Arizona Poetry Center. Jaime is a Knowledge River Scholar, uh, Cohort 12, and is committed to serving the underprivileged populations of all BIPOC communities. Jaime hopes to create a greater awareness of the College of Law's special collections and archives through exhibition and as a liaison with all other College of Law departments and the greater University of Arizona community. Jaime's most recent scholarship is forthcoming in a book chapter titled Demonstrating Inclusion and Allyship, Amplifying an Indigenous Voice Through Physical and Digital uh, Exhibition. Thank you for that introduction, Rhiannon. So uh, I think like most of our our audience, uh, we don't know one another that well. So I was hopeful that you'd be able to expand upon the NEH-funded project Tribe Sourcing Southwest Film and Digital Repatriation. And related to that, uh, tell me what excites you about your work and what impact do you hope it has? Are the two related? Are they separate? Uh, Yeah, um, right off the bat, working within my... Uh, I think what's most excites me is working within and serving my home community. Uh, ever since I came back, I've been able to watch my institution and grow, grow from a um, coming out of being a community college into being a four-year degree. 
granting uh, institution. And little by little, we're starting to offer graduate degree programs as well. And that's been a big deal considering that tribal colleges, the Net College specifically was one of the first tribally uh, controlled and chartered uh, colleges in the United States. And they all had their start as uh, community colleges. So it feels great to be part of that legacy of being able to grow in that way and being part of that growth as well. Um, I feel like they're very related uh, because uh, growing Indigenous scholarship is very, for me, I've been able to watch that growth of Indigenous scholarship and building scholars here uh, within tribal lands. Uh, historically, a lot of, um, of my, my um tribal members had to go off reservation in order to uh, get go to higher education, to get their higher education. Um, and so being able to see that happen right within our own homelands and to see scholarship and knowledge, uh, speci- specifically place-based knowledge, uh, being developed here has been just absolutely amazing. And being able to see how Indigenous-based curriculum helps build that, um, how we separate ourselves from a lot of institutions because we are built on the uh, foundation, the foundations of the educational philosophy and being able to watch that scholarship grow from within tribal lands and being able to stay here and grow it from here has just absolutely been absolutely amazing. Um, having the library as part of that, since we work with um, faculty uh, and student researchers and been part of their journeys here, whether that's their scholarship that they're starting here or they're continuing publishing and research uh, done by the faculty here as well. So being able to be part of that has just been absolutely amazing and has really drives um, me and excites me about my work. So in turn, Jaime, I want to ask you too, like what excites you about your work and uh, do you think it has an impact? Yes. So thanks, Rhiannon. Uh, I think it's uh, nice to hear you mentioned, you know, the indigenous scholarship that's being produced uh, on the reservation. So I think one of the things that ex- one of the things that excites me here at the law library is my ability as an archivist to control the exhibit space that is afforded to me. And one of the uh, great things about here is our indigenous population. So we have the Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy Program here at the Krakiol, or at the James E. Rogers College of Law which just recently celebrated its 20-year anniversary. And in support of that anniversary, I had the opportunity to work with one of the IPLP students uh, named Joseph K. Austin, who published uh, some scholarship in a local magazine here for the Arizona uh, Bar Association. And the work was titled, The Words of the Talking God, Building and Sustaining Native Nations Through the Common Law. So I think with one of the things with my, the exhibit space, is that often I'll create text panels where I do my best to share information that I either obtain from a book or a, you know, a specific event in history that highlights our collection material. So with Joseph's piece, I found it uh, extremely rewarding to realize that not only could I share his scholarship, but it was probably best to just allow the text, Joseph, to speak for himself. So rather than me try to recreate any or rephrase anything that he he wrote, I would just use ec- excerpts from his article and just put that on a display with, uh, 
you know, the material I selected, including highlighting his scholarship, like I was able to purchase uh, some books that he cited in his resource. And I really just let Joseph control the exhibit space through co-curation. So like I shared the excerpts that I chose uh, with him that I wanted to highlight. I got his permission to share those excerpts, like he approved everything. So before I fully launched and um, opened the exhibit space, uh, everything was kind of run through Joseph. So it was definitely co-collaboration. Um, so that, that was exciting. Um, and then just in archives and special collections, it's that consistent need to learn and adapt so like there's always something new, you know, with our digital spaces, how do you combine that with our manuscripts and physical collections, physical objects? Um, so there's always something new to learn. And then just in general, it's the ability and desire to help others, which is kind of what led me into the profession to begin with. So that helping and assisting others, that's also true for exhibits and that I try to instill some type of takeaway that you know, anything that I'm presenting on exhibit hopefully is informative and to do that in a concise uh, as way as possible to highlight the material that's on exhibit. Um, and then just with some of the scholarly communications work. So although I have the archivist and um, special collection side, there's also the scholarly communication. So I assist our faculty in disseminating the scholarship they produce here at the law school, as well as helping them with their personal branding through scholarly identity. So I help monitor their scholarly profiles through like Google Scholar or Hein Online. Um, I've helped several of our faculty members, the majority obtain their ORCID ID. So with the ORCID ID, that's just uh, think of that as the social security number for your scholarship. Um, and it helps bring everything together. It helps resolve name ambiguity and things like that. So here at the law library, the work's exciting just because there's always the ability for me to dip in from one area to another, provide services under the law library umbrella, and then also be able to, I guess, share the work of others. And that just doesn't include the faculty, but like students such as Joseph Austin. And uh, that is something that some of the law library fellows, um, so the law library fellowship program here at the Cracula Law Library um, has an interest in obtaining um, students who are interested in law librarianship, and it affords them the opportunity to pursue their graduate degree here at the University of Arizona iSchool. And most recently, I worked with one of the fellows here named uh, Francesco Fasano, and he also worked with some of our IPLP students on exhibit work. So they co-collaborated on exhibits as well. So we're trying to get this steam rolling or uh, the ball rolling on us consistently working with our IPLP students and providing those our exhibit spaces here in the law library kind of as a pedestal, a platform for them to share their scholarship that's being produced. And, you know, it's just another avenue for us to share those indigenous voices that might not be afforded in other places. So um, thinking of that, Rhiannon, can you speak to how you got to the position you are today and what, what just basically led you there? Yeah, um, like everybody else, I did not, in, like not everybody else, but like a lot of people, I did not go in thinking I was going to be a librarian after I uh, finished my undergraduate work. I started a program at the University of Rhode Island, specifically focusing in English. Uh, it, it was a literature program, very heavy in critical theory, but they had a creative writing component 
um, that I went into. I myself do a lot of uh, creative nonfiction. Um, but as I was applying, I noticed that they had a dual MA MLIS program that was available. And so I just went into both. Like I was very interested. On one hand, I knew there was a lot of pressure going in um, with just an English degree. So I was like, okay, maybe I can, you know, also work in an MLIS um, and see where that takes me. Um, I think I even thought of it as kind of like a fallback. But I found how connected the two were as I was uh, working through the program. I also worked as a TA with the English department. So I was teaching courses and I worked a lot with the library in terms of scheduling my uh, information literacy sessions. Uh, But at the same time, I was also on the other side of that where I was taking courses and learning how to um, teach information literacy in the library. So I was kind of felt like I was really co teaching with the librarians. And I thought this is something I was really interested in, uh, just because it had a lot of overlap with what I was doing anyway, with the English department. But I think what really kind of um, helped me change that trajectory into the library space was during my final semester um, at the University of Rhode Island, where we had to do our practicum. And I couldn't really Like there were a lot of options there, but one particularly came up um, as I was getting ready to graduate. And it was a online, completely online virtual um, practicum with the University of Arizona and with uh, Dr. Jennifer Jenkins. Um, She works with the English department and the Southwest Studies, uh, Department Southwest. Southwest Studies Research Center. And at the time, she was working with the American Indian Film Gallery, which was a huge collection of digitized uh, early 20th century film um, that was collected by uh, Fred McDonald. And at that point, it was on the University of Arizona's website. Uh, it still uses, it was still using Flash at the time, but my work was very much part of integrating information literacy. I made a lot of um, uh, lesson plans to incorporating those films with uh, film courses and in English courses. And I explored grant writing because, you know, the the resource was there, but we wanted to do more with it. We had ideas about doing more with it. So I did kind of get my first uh, try at grant writing and first um, crack at it during that practicum. And it was literally right after graduation that I made my way back home. And that's when I, a lot within that first year, I had my position here at the Diné College at Kiaani Library. And at the same time, we went for it um, in terms of writing that grant for tribe sourcing. Um, And ever since then, I feel like that's just been kind of defined uh, where my career has gone, starting with that um, degree program, the dual degree program at the University of Rhode Island. I still incorporate a lot of my nonfiction uh, elements. Uh, I still am a creative nonfiction person at heart. I do a lot of work and scholarship around the concept of authority uh, because that comes up a lot in information literacy as well. 
and in indigenous research methods as well. So a lot of it just really nicely tied together um, as I was uh, approaching the end of my uh, studies at the University of Rhode Island. Uh, so that's that's how I got into this uh, current position, how I, my scholarship here and my work here back on the Navajo Nation got started. Um, but with that, I also want to turn a question on you, Jaime. Uh, can you tell us more about the path you took to get to where you are today? Yeah, so thank you. Uh, it's funny you mentioned, you know, the creative writing background. So I myself was a creative writing fiction major, uh, which is what I received my Bachelor of Arts in as an undergrad. Um, and one of the things that I guess I found that I didn't necessarily like was taking certain moments or stories from my life and sharing those in a fictional manner with others. But, you know, you you write what you know. So I could only, and, you know, family is important to me. So I take aspects of that, share it with others in a fictional setting. But of course, we, you know, being uh, with the family, fortunate for me with the family that cares, they'd read stuff that I wrote, like my mom reads everything that I wrote. So she'd be like, oh, well, you know, this character kills his mom in this story. Are you just trying to tell me that, you, you know, you wanted to, I'm like, no, it's a story, <laughs> you know. And then I also dabbled in uh, sports journalism for a semester. So I covered club sports at the Arizona Daily Wildcat. And in interviewing some student athletes, I'd ask a direct question and then they'd open it up and then they just share some of that back end information where I was just not really felt comfortable pursuing. I'd be like, oh, that's written, you know, in my head, I'd be like, that's unbelievable, but I don't want to pursue that line of questioning because I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to make the person I'm talking to uncomfortable with some of the, the traumatic stories or just impressive things that they're sharing with me. So creative writing was definitely something I guess you would say I would just not choose to pursue after undergraduate, uh, my undergraduate studies. And then working with some of the professors here at the University of Arizona, I quickly realized how challenging it was to be a writer. And I wouldn't say that I was interested in it to like, you know, thinking that I'd be making a lot of money. You know, there's always like that thought in your mind as a, a younger person, like, oh, I'm going to be published and, you know, people are going to be buying books and reading my stuff. Like, I think that quickly went out the window. So. Yeah. Right after I graduated, I didn't really pursue anything in the creative writing field. So I started working retail, Costco wholesale. And working there, that's when I quickly realized I would, did not want to be doing that for the rest of my life. So it just turns out that one of my family members uh, was let go uh, from his employment. And my mom, who had worked in libraries for over 30 years here at the University of Arizona in the finance department, mentioned library school to that family member and when i heard that i was like oh maybe that's something i should pursue so i contacted the iSchool director at the time and he sent me over to the knowledge river program i applied was accepted in and that's how i got into the library program here at the university of arizona um, i had little to no experience in libraries whatsoever aside from just using them as a study space, uh, you know, checking out books to write papers. I never really took advantage of the research services that librarians provided. Um, you know, I'd sit in those lectures for the Boolean searching techniques, but aside from that, none. And at the University of Arizona, there's very much an emphasis, or at least at the time I was in grad school, was either you pursue public libraries or it's archives and special collections. 
So having worked retail, I was kind of like, no, I don't know if I can be work with the public like that on a consistent basis. So I was definitely more, I chose archives and special collections as an area of emphasis. And with not having any library experience, I volunteered at the U of A's Poetry Center, um, working with their special collections and archives material. I took a graduate assistantship at a special collection, so the University of Arizona Egyptian Expedition. Um, so I was really just trying to do my best to um, gain as much experience as possible. Also during grad school, that's where I had the opportunity to intern uh, at Freeport McMoran and do some cataloging work for a mining company and also working with some of their company records. So find, writing finding aids and going through company records, producing finding aids for that material. That way that material was findable for uh, employees of the company. Um, and that's really what kind of drove me to uh, the law school. And then, at least in my current position, um, I was interested in getting my foot in the door at the University of Arizona, so a large academic institution, a research uh, institution, and a library. And the position I first applied for was a library assistant, where the primary responsibility was distributing College of Law mail. So I thought in the back of my head, man, I hope there's not a lot of recent uh, library graduates who are interested in processing mail, and that'll help, you know, give me a shot as that foot in the door opportunity. And I think fortunately for me, there probably weren't a lot of uh, other grads, graduates who were interested in processing mail since they just received, you know, completed their master's program. So once I got in, you know, that's where I could just basically took my initiative, you know, I made connections in delivering mail. If I was delivering mail to faculty members, maybe I'd just pop in and introduce myself like, hey, professor such and such, uh, something came in for the mail for you. My name's Jaime Valenzuela, I'm a new hire. Just wanted to let you know, you know, hello, welcome. Happy to do anything I can to assist. At least at that time, it would have just been mail related, not like any research requests, but I was also just like, eh, if I can't help you, I'll put you in touch with the light librarian who can. Um, and it just so happens that two or three months after I started, the person responsible for special collections and archives here at the Krakiola Law Library left. So I went to my supervisor and said, hey, this is what I went to school for. I'm happy to assist in this area. Um, I can help as needed, process material, cover it on my free time. Once I get the mail done, I'm willing to jump into this, this work area and help and assist. I let that be known to my supervisor. I let the law library director know. and. Uh, by the end of the year, 2017, I was promoted to library specialist special collections, and I became responsible for the archives and special collections here at the law library, and I've just kind of since run it from there. So that's how I find myself in the position I am today, and as other faculty, other librarians have retired, I've assumed other responsibilities, such as the scholarly communication stuff and working with our faculty. So it's kind of come full circle, whereas once I was just delivering mail, now I'm dispersing scholarship on behalf of our faculty. So uh, an interesting uh, time in libraries to where I am now. That's I guess great. from Yeah, so with that, um, just finding where we are today and the different materials and objects, manuscripts, and people we work with, um, and something I myself have not given a lot of thought to until becoming a part of this fellowship, because cultural heritage um, just, I guess, wasn't necessarily in my vocabulary, like cultural competence was, 
a culture was, but defining it as cultural heritage just isn't something I gave a lot of thought to prior to this fellowship and working with some of the other fellows in, in our cohort. So I would ask, what does cultural heritage mean to you and to your work? Yeah, I'm glad we have that um, area we're covering here. It's like you said, cultural her- cultural competency. Recently, I've worked in cultural humility, but cultural heritage, that one just completely flew over my head for a bit. Um, but as we're wake, I know that this fellowship is by Rare Books School. Um, it's interesting because I think a lot about, especially with my own cultural heritage, and I think of like indigenous cultural heritage, I think back to the fact that um, a lot of us do not have our native languages, our indigenous languages, they weren't always in the textual form. Uh, so it wasn't until um, the Franciscan uh, missionaries started transcribing, trying to transcribe Navajo that we ever had any kind of written form. Otherwise, it was just completely spoken. So I have a lot of focus uh, when I think about some of the materials we have about the non-textual forms of uh, knowledge, uh, particularly coming out of the Diné um, epistemologies and ontologies and all of that stuff. And it's not always been something that has been written down. A lot of it has been passed down through a lot of the recordings that we have. Um, We do have lectures that are completely in Navajo. Some of them are um, video lectures on very specific topics, especially relating to like the educational philosophy. And it also encompasses things that may, people may not even really think of as, uh, I guess you could say, uh, the things that wouldn't necessarily find in an archive or a library. So, for example, the library works closely with the Navajo Cultural Arts Program, which is um, focusing in on the practices of weaving, Navajo weaving, um, silversmithing, and basket making, moccasin making, anything relating to that. Um, and a lot of it, I draw a lot of parallels with that with my creative nonfiction because I remember I was saying that I really draw a lot of parallel with how my grandmother used to weave. And that was her way of writing, I would say, uh, based on how she uh, collected her wool and how she dyed it and what, you know, plants she used in the local area to make her. Um, the, the range of colors of her wool to the design, everything was very, told so much about her. And I think the same can be said of a lot of the cultural arts that come out of indigenous communities. They say so much, um, not in the words, but the art styles. Uh, so I really focus on this non-textual form of knowledge and meaning making uh, when I think about uh, cultural heritage and my work. But it's just not something that I can think of as just sitting in a repository or just sitting in um, the space that we have here. I also think about like, how does it tie into the community? And I think this kind of emphasizes the stuff we talked about, about building bridges, uh, tying it within the community. It doesn't just sit within an institution untouched. Uh, in the Navajo way, we are taught that we that certain things are handled. Um, one of the 
uh, good things that really came out of that NEH grant with the um, uh, uh, the Arts Research Humanities Council was having a lot of conversations about what it means to serve Indigenous populations in a responsible way with their materials. And one of our visits was to the uh, Museum of Northern Arizona, and they have a, such a great uh, set up with their Easton collection. The building itself was done with indigenous knowledges, indigenous protocols in mind. They have they the materials there. They let tribal communities that come by. They get they're allowed to handle the materials, and the, their approach to it is like we're not protecting the objects from people. We're actually protecting people from the objects because they actually have materials that have been treated with chemicals and that can be harmful um, to people. So uh, the idea there is interaction. They allow people to take materials outside. They believe that they're living entities and they get to experience sunlight and so forth. So being able to tie in the community to that is just such a big portion of what it means to have that cultural heritage component there. Um, and when I think of uh, some of the, again, the materials, especially non-textual materials, is the working intergenerationally. What I mean by this is that one of the key components of working with the Navajo Cultural Arts Program is being able to pass that knowledge down. And we always tend to think of it coming from elders, making its way down to the younger people. But because a lot of the younger people are now more used to working with social media, with digital technologies, a lot of times they're the ones that are really good at documenting a lot of the uh, oral histories and working with technologies. And so they're able to team up with um, older knowledge knowledge holders and be able to work the other way around too. So sometimes it's the younger people working their way up toward older generations. So it's kind of like this um, the cultural arts program calls the intergenerational transfer of knowledge. And I think that's a, a key component there uh, when working with cultural heritage materials, because we do have a lot of stuff, but um, it may or may not be of uh, interest to some of the older populations that don't know how to use a catalog and so forth. So being able to kind of like engage in that way and make these materials engaging to the communities um, and not just purely academics. I think that's where I, I would think of when I think of cultural heritage. Um, but I want to get your response too, Jaime. What does it mean to you and your work? Yeah, so thanks, Rihanna. And so it's, you know, you say community and you're very, you're dealing with a specific community with, you know, your location. So here at the law school, there's the Arizona law community. So that's the student population, the faculty population that I'm serving. And then as a land-grant institution, it's the Arizona community that I'm serving. So our spaces are open. And I think a lot of times when people think of archives and special collections, it's like, oh, that's the, the important material. It's too rare. It's too fragile to be touched. Um, so in relation to that, I think one of my duties is to be able to open those spaces and get people interested in the material. So cultural heritage in relation to that, it's the stories of my community that I'm serving. I mentioned the IPLP program. Um, and just given the, I think the, what we're trying to produce for our law students and make them well-rounded, educated lawyers is that we need to share those stories. So cultural heritage to me is the stories that shape us 
and the ability to share those stories with others. So I do that with my exhibit space, as I've touched on already. Um, and it's really just trying to let others know that there are other viewpoints and ways of thinking in particular, like one of the such ways is, you know, how we think about law. So, you know, Joseph Austin's piece really talked about indigenous knowledge and the idea that it's shared um, through, through culture. Like we don't need uh, what, um, you know, like constitutional law telling anybody that that's the only way to go about, um, you know, sustaining a nation. Uh, it's, you know, within the cultures and, or the, the stories that are shared from one another. So I think it's, again, just my, my duty to share those stories with others and highlight some of the materials and tie it into other stories and maybe get those back-end stories, like what's, what's hidden behind the object, like who's actually making the books that are being produced. Um, if a particular title or book that's highlighted has a certain subject matter, uh, can we move beyond that and highlight something else and make those connections? And maybe that leads to purchasing more material that I can highlight or highlighting scholarship that might not be um, given the platform, the spotlight that it deserves um, and sharing those stories, uh, being able to like share my story here and how I got into library school, uh, learning about your, your path to library school and, you know, why you stay where you are. Like recently I shared with you uh, my, my, desire, my desire to um, perhaps seek another position on the East Coast and the ability to like lead others and work with them and provide professional development opportunities for those. And in turn, you shared your excitement and why you chose to stay in a position that you're in when you also uh, found yourself seeking another opportunity elsewhere and ultimately decided to stay where you are to serve your community. So I think that's really what ties me in too. And going back to like something like Knowledge River, I feel like I have an obligation to serve the BIPOC communities that are coming up in the library and information uh, science world, uh, those who are interested in archives and special collections. So any opportunity that I can to impart uh, any knowledge that I may have in just sharing experience and also perhaps giving them an opportunity to use the space that are afforded to me to help impart knowledge to them and share that knowledge with others, give them a space that they may not otherwise have, whether that be a scholar or a student. So I think that's what cultural heritage means to me is just keeping it going and providing others the opportunity, that space to do so. That's so great. I, I love that. Um, so I wonder if that ties in with um, what we're, we need to, well, we need to wrap up soon. Um, I wonder if that ties into our final question for each other. Like what impact do you hope your work will have? Yeah. Um, so I hope I can just impart some, some knowledge that other people may not be aware of prior to like coming across my exhibit space or uh, sharing a story that others just might not be aware of before they review any of the exhibits that I might have put together. Um, and then in the work that I'm doing and maybe some of the future collections or materials that I purchase, um, exposing them to materials that they may not otherwise find elsewhere and some of like the education that they're afforded. So I think that's how I can have an impact on others. Um, how about yourself, Rihanna? I always go back to a couple things. One of them is I always emphasize uh, perpetuation over preservation. Uh, I know there's a lot of like 
um, focus in on, especially with indigenous materials, to preserve, to preserve. But I always go back to what one of our um, higher, um, our local hatashi, the medicine man, keeps saying is, you know, books you can leave on the shelf and you can just leave them there indefinitely. But when it comes to things that are relating to our cultural heritage, to our knowledge, to uh, the Navajo ways of thinking, it's not something you can just leave on the shelf and come back to later. You have to think of it like a fire. You got to tend to it. You got to actively be part of it. So that's what I think about like perpetuation versus preservation. Like perpetuation means actively using it, not just, you know, leaving it there uh, for preservation. Another part too is very similar to what you were saying. I really want to help the community of upcoming um indigenous librarians, um, BIPOC communities. Uh, we really need more people in these spaces. Um, I definitely want to lead this library with more librarian, uh, you know, native librarians than I came in with. <laughs> so sure. I would love to be part of that. So that's uh, what I'm hoping the impact my work will have um, coming out of this career. So, yeah. Well, we are wrapping up now. Jaime, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. It was my pleasure, Rihanna, and thank you so much. Thanks to the Rare Book School Mellon Fellowship for funding this project. Remember to visit us at bit.ly slash chconvos 